Well, uh, Aaron White was correct, I think, when he said the after-lunch crowd can be the roughest. Not because of boisterousness, but because of lethargy. (laughs) Which is the spiritual word for nap-taking. So, we'll try to keep it not dull. And I I just got to echo, I've talked to each of the speakers, and uh, this has been such a morning of encouragement, hasn't it? And so good to be together, so good to see one another, to be able to hear the Word of God preached and expounded, and what a tremendous, tremendous blessing. So the, the last sola of the five is soli deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. And it is fitting, I think, that we end this way because this is the glue that holds all of the other solas together. And as we think about how our lives should be lived and how our response should look to what we've already heard today, I think this is one of the best ways that we can end. So I want to start just by making a comparison. When we look around, and we've already heard a lot about this, as we look at the difference between how should we as Christians live our lives and how does the majority of the world think about how we live there's a pretty stark difference, isn't there? And there's a pretty big difference between what we hear around us and what we hear from God's Word. And one of the impetus that brought us to this point of wanting to have this conference is that there's probably a lot of people who could speak doctrinally, right? We we know the theology. But I think it was Aaron White who said, we want to know the Bible under the theology, right? We want to know what God's Word says because... I can tell you all kinds of doctrinal things. I can tell you this person said this or whatever, but ultimately the authority that we stand on is that of God's word and the truth that we find there. So thank you to Josh for laying that out first thing this morning, that our authority doesn't come from ourself, doesn't come from our experience, it comes from God's word. And as you've probably noticed, all of these things, scripture, grace, faith, Christ, it all kind of interlocks and creates this great tapestry for us to see, to take advantage of, to internalize and then externalize as we communicate these truths with one another. Our culture, by and large, is bent on convincing you that you are the center of the universe. Isn't it? I mean, if you think about the things that we see, the things that we hear, just consider advertising slogans, which is a riot of a time. Think about some of the stuff that you see. How do people and companies try to sell you their product? Two ways. One, by either telling you how great the product is, or two, by telling you that this will in some way complete you, or make you better, or kind of grow you into this thing or this person that you should be. Think of some of the slogans that we hear. Because you're worth it. Have it your way. Which is Burger King. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Embrace your health. Or even if we get out of regular advertising, we get into the area of some Christian literature. Don't mind that. Right? Look at some of the topics of things. It reads more like self-help than it does like Bible And I'm just so convinced that the purpose of the universe, the purpose of your life and my life is not to live in comfort. It is not to live 
inwardly focused and saying, how can I get the best existence? How can I be the most comfortable? The point of our life, the point of your life, is to live to the glory of God alone. And that's it. And that gets expressed in a myriad of ways, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. The Bible paints a very different picture than that that we see most places. Everything around us is driving us back to ourselves to say, how can I promote myself? How can I live better? How can I feel better? And the Bible says it's not about you. When we practice biblical theology, you guys know what biblical theology is? It's taking the whole storyline of the Bible, start to finish, and seeing how it all relates to one another. When we do that, we get the very clear understanding that the universe doesn't exist for us. The universe exists to display the power and the majesty and the worth and most of all the glory of our God. That's why it's here. That's why we are here. So what I want to do in this last session is to show you from the pages of Scripture that everything, everything exists for the glory of God. And then I want to close by seeing how we're to live our lives like that. How do we live to the glory of God alone? We're going to look at some texts. We're going to see some examples. But before we do any of that, we need to ask for help. Because I don't feel sufficient. I know I'm not. So let's pray together. Father, I come before you as a servant of yours as one that's been called to preach the gospel. And I know my own limitations. I know my own weaknesses and my tendencies towards sin. Which is why hearing what we've heard this morning is such good news. That you do not look at me through my own merit, but as your child you see me through the merit of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. As we take the next few minutes now, Father, and look to your word, I pray that each one of us would come away knowing more. But but more than that, we don't just want the knowledge. We want to know how can we live? How can we speak? How can we think in a way that you get all of the glory, all of the credit, all of the honor that you are due? Because you're worth it all. So Holy Spirit, come. Speak through me and give us ears. Give me ears. This isn't just a message for someone else. This is a message for me. And I want to be changed by it. So I pray now that our time would be helpful and encouraging. And most of all, that we would see the glory of God more clearly. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the word glory in the Bible is used in a variety of ways in a variety of contexts. And I want to look at a few of the examples that we see because before we get into, well, how shall we live to the glory of God, we kind of have to know what that is, right? We can't just assume that with this many people we all agree or have the same definition, and especially when the Bible uses this in a very broad sense. So I want to look at a few things. In the Old Testament... We see the word glory used as a physical representation of God in his presence. Exodus 16, 10. 
As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We see it used as this physical representation of the presence of God. We also see glory as something not only that represents God's presence, but as something he receives. He receives glory, again, from Exodus chapter 14. This is God speaking. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go out after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and chariots. God receives, God gets glory from his acts. We also see glory not just as something God gets, but as something that we are to ascribe to him, something that we give him. First Chronicles 16, in this wonderful worship service, really is what's going on, Here's what we read, 1 Chronicles 16 in verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Glory is something that we give to God. Maybe the most seminal or central text about glory comes from Isaiah. And you should all know where I'm going here. Isaiah chapter 6. We read this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew and one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So if we use Isaiah 6, I think we can see that the glory of God is the outward, visible manifestation of his perfection, his character. What does it mean that God is holy? Well, he's set apart. He's not like you and I. And when the heavenly beings who are in the presence of God, as close as you and I are to one another, when they see God and they see the perfection of who he is, his manifold wisdom displayed in all of creation, what do they say? God is holy and the overflow of that holiness is his glory. The outward, visible manifestation of his perfections. Now, we have to ask, if this is true, if, if we are to give God glory or live our lives to the glory of God alone, how does that work? How can we give to God what he already is? And that's what we're going to get into. This is a question that the reformers were concerned with. As the recovery of the gospel developed, all the things that we've already heard about today, as all of that was coming into being, the question became, how should we think about salvation? How should we think about this gift of God's grace received by faith through the work of Christ revealed in the scriptures so that God alone gets the credit, God gets the glory? That was the question. And that should also be our question that comes up. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we again see the word glory being used in a variety of ways. We see it, for instance, referring to our eternal future. Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. 
or 1 Peter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We also see glory being used to describe something God possesses. Romans 1.23 They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the glory of God, the worth, the beauty, the value of God for something much less than. And just as kind of a side note, if you ever wonder what is the primary problem in the world, what is the underlying thing that produces all of the wild behavior, think one, two, three. Romans one twenty three. we have exchanged what is infinitely valuable for a piece of poop. It is nothing. This is the problem. This is what happens. The biggest problem, 1, 2, 3, Romans 1, 23, we exchange the glory of God for something else. Now, before we consider how the Reformers articulated the glory of God, we turn to one of the more common uses in the New Testament of this word, namely that of credit or praiseworthiness. Who deserves what? Okay, who can or should rightfully take credit for something that happens? Let's look at a few texts to see this example. First, let's start with Jesus. He's just finished the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When Jesus says, give glory to your Father in heaven, he means that when people see what we do as Christians, when they see our compassion, our gentleness, our patience, when they see us stand for truth, when they see us exercise the fruits of the Spirit, they should not look at us and say, that's a great person. They should look at us and say, that's a great God. Because God deserves the credit. God deserves the glory for what we do. Hebrews 3 For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. Okay, here it's again being used to show honor or praiseworthiness or worth. One more example. This is a negative example, but I think it really illustrates the point well. Acts 12, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Why was he struck down? He didn't give the credit where credit was due. He took it for himself. He exchanged what was rightfully God's and took it. He should have stopped them. Now, he was a wicked ruler. He didn't love God. He didn't honor God. He persecuted the church. But what should he have done? He should have stopped them and said, nope, I'm just a man. God alone deserves glory, but he didn't. And he paid with his life. I mean, if we ever come to think that the glory of God is some kind of light, 
insignificant thing, remember this text. Remember what Isaiah says. God says through Isaiah chapter 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. This is not a small thing. This is not just a little bit extra on the end of the soul as this is it. Who receives credit? Who receives glory? Do you feel some of the tension of that phrase from Isaiah? I'm not going to share that with anybody else. Do you see how contrary that is to the messages we normally hear? How different that is? Everything around us is driving us to self-promotion, self-exaltation. And God says, no. I'm going to be exalted. I'm going to be promoted. And in doing that, this is the paradox of the Christian life. We actually find more satisfaction, more fulfillment, more happiness than if we had exalted ourselves. Because we are nothing compared to Almighty God. And yet, in Christ, he stoops down to us. Unbelievable. But that's the God that we serve. The glory of God is his worth, his value, beauty and splendor he will not share with anyone. Now let's talk about why the glory of God became kind of the glue, I called it a glue that holds all the other solas together. When we think about the glory of God in terms of credit, who, who deserves what, it should be fairly clear how this applies to and solidifies Scripture, grace, faith, Christ alone. As the other men have pointed out today, the alternative to faith is works. The alternative to grace is wages. The alternative to Christ's work is our work. The alternative to the authority of Scripture is our own man-made standard. And similarly, when it comes to the glory of God, the polar opposite would be the glory of man. That's the opposite. And the reason that it's really important, I think, to talk about this is in, in detailed terms is that it's not always going to be the big things, the big moves, the big obvious steps away from things that get us in trouble. It's the small movement away. It's the small direction from preaching Christ. It's a small move away from the authority of the Bible. It's letting these things creep into the message of the gospel that will get us into trouble. And in doing those things, it's not even close to being harmless. We are doing what Romans one twenty three said and robbing God of the glory that he deserves. The Protestant Reformation may have been 500 years ago, but there remains a tremendous need for us to bring back the significance of what all these things mean. Now we've already heard that the big problem during the time of the Reformation was that the church had strayed from the authority of the Scriptures. They didn't preach the truth. They'd preach whatever would meet their needs. If they needed a new cathedral, they'd heavily emphasize giving to the church by whatever means necessary. We heard about indulgences and how that all fed into the financial aspect of the church. So... The reason that was happening is because, again, this has all been pointed out, there was not ready and easy access to the Word of God. 
And of course, if you trust the church and trust what they say and you have no way of pointing out that that's wrong, what are you going to do? You're just going to do what they tell you to do. You're not going to worry about combating that. How would you even go against it? The problem was this strain, this moving away from the authority of God's word. This is why we started with Sola Scriptura. Because the Bible is what informs our thinking. The Bible is what informs our practice. The Bible is what gives us the framework for how to live our life to the glory of God. So in order for there to be sola scriptura, there had to first be scriptura. Right? There had to be a Bible. There had to be a way for people to look at the word of God and say, this is the standard. This is where it starts. So... I mean, we talk often about the Reformation in terms of Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Cranmer and all these guys who were very influential, but I think the Reformation started with Tyndale, with Gutenberg, with the men and women who gave their physical and literal life so that the Bible would get translated and printed and distributed in the language of the people. If everything we believe rests on the authority of the Bible... There has to be a Bible. (laughs) I mean, that sounds obvious, but it does. There has to be a word that we read, a word that we speak, and a truth that we hold to that comes outside of ourselves. So praise God for the work of translation that still happens, and praise God for the work of printing that gets it into our hands. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to look to the Bible And I want to see what does it look like for you and I to live our lives sole deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We started preaching through Ephesians last fall here at Grace Bible Church. And so I'm going to go back a few chapters from where we are now. So I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Paul lays out the salvation that God has planned and accomplished in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he encourages us to live our lives in light of that gospel. So let's look now to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 14. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. When we put all of this together, everything that Paul is saying in these verses, we should be able to see with overwhelming clarity that everything related to our salvation was designed so that God receives praise, God receives glory, God receives the credit for what has happened in this work of redemption. I want to draw your attention to three realities in the passage. I want to show first from Ephesians 1 that the glory of God is Trinitarian. Number two, the praise of God's glory is our response to God's work in salvation. And number three, our praise of God's glory has been the design from the beginning. So let's look first at the fact that the glory of God is Trinitarian. We see glory in this passage in relation to all three members of the Trinity. Let's just look quickly. Verse 5, in love he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his, God's glorious grace. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We see Jesus. And then 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All of these things are involved in this Glory. God's not trying to hide this. He, he didn't keep this just to one aspect. He demonstrates and displays his glory through all of the intra-Trinitarian works that we see, especially in this passage. Next, we see that the praise of God's glory is in response to his work of redemption. Every time we see the phrase, to the praise of his glory, or the praise of his glorious grace, in Ephesians 1, it is a response to what has been revealed about God's redemptive work. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Therefore, praise his glorious grace. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ. Therefore, live to the praise of his glory. We have been exposed to the gospel. We have heard the gospel of salvation and were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, our lives should be to the praise of his glory. The Bible doesn't call us to live our lives in praise and worship and thanksgiving for no reason. It gives us examples. It gives us testimony. It shows us the work of God and then calls us into the experience of that so then we turn and give God the glory and the credit that he is due. You cannot love what you don't know. You can't praise what you don't love and therefore if we are to live our lives to the praise and glory of God we have to both know him and love him don't try to separate doctrine from praise and worship or theology from glory you need both of those things 
Now, our tendency is to kind of swing the pendulum to one side or the other and say, well, I don't, I don't want to do theology. That's for, that's for people different than me. I, I don't even know what that's about. But the truth is, is that we all do theology. If I were to ask you, who is Jesus? You'd say the Son of God, theology. It's everywhere. So don't, don't be scared of that. Don't try to get away from that. The instances where we are called to worship are in response to God's revealed plan of redemption. We're not just called to praise just because, well, we're Christians, we got to praise. No, God gives us clear examples and reasons for us to praise his glory. Maybe the best example of this is found at the end of Romans 11. And we should all be able to quote this together. I won't put you on the spot, but I'm really tempted to. Romans 11, Paul has labored now for 11 chapters to explain sin and redemption and faith and justification and future glorification, all of these kinds of things. And when he gets to the end, what does he say? He worships. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given a gift for him that he should receive back? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we could go on. What is Paul's response to the saving work of Christ? Glory, worship, and praise. The praise of God's glory is our response to the work of redemption. Third, the praise of God's glory has been the design from the beginning. Notice the language Paul uses in Ephesians 1 when he talks about our salvation and our response to that salvation. Plan, purpose, predestined, according to God's will. The glory of God alone is not a new concept, is it? Glory is built into the plan of redemption. It has always been. And what was the purpose of God in creating the universe 6,000 years ago? It's the praise of his glory, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. God created the world to display and reflect his glory. What was the goal of God creating mankind, spreading us all over the globe in different nations and families and displaying to us his wondrous works? What was the goal of that? Psalm 86 There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations you have made shall come and worship before you and glorify your name, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. The goal of everything God does is the praise of his glory. As we read the history of redemption We see at every turn, at every rise, at every fall, God has set things up intentionally so that he gets the praise and he gets the glory. And then, when we come to the new covenant, we see with great clarity that God has redeemed a people for himself to be his own possession and that they would be to the praise of his glory.
Or, to say it another way, that we would be to the glory of God alone. So let's end this time by considering a few different ways that we can do what Ephesians 1 is talking about. Right? I mean, if we just read through this and said, well, that's great, God wants to be glorified, and he's done things worthy of being glorified, and amen, let's be dismissed. That wouldn't be helpful. And we want to be helpful, right? We want to be practical. So let's look at three things. We need to answer the question of if, if God's glory, his, his worth, his beauty, his splendor, if all of that is due to the fact that he has displayed his power and his works, how should you and I respond to that? How should we live our lives in light of that? I have three suggestions. Number one, we live our lives to the glory of God alone when we publicly celebrate his sovereign grace and salvation. Do you understand that God saved you by his grace if you are in Christ? Do you understand that God is not trying to hide the fact that he saved you by his grace? He's not shy about that. Read the New Testament. Many people that I talk to seem almost embarrassed by the doctrine of election. Like it's something that we need to apologize for. God saved us by his grace. Now there of course are things that God does in secret that nobody else sees. The way that he works, the way that he ordains, the way that he moves. We don't see all of that. But salvation is not one of those things. Salvation is not something that God has hidden in this mysterious little box that no one can open and go, "Mm, how did that happen? He's revealed himself through his word. The work of God's grace in saving us and bringing us into his family was designed by God to be a public display of his wisdom. This is what Paul gets into later in Ephesians, that the mystery of the gospel is that this salvation which we heard earlier from Ephesians 2, is by grace through faith. That's not just for one people. God is after global glory, not localized glory. He is an infinite God and therefore worthy of infinite glory. So when he reveals his plan of redemption, he is not, hear me, not limited to a certain kind of person or a certain people group. God's glory is on full display and we live our lives to the glory of God alone when we publicly celebrate God's sovereign grace and salvation. Number two, we live our lives to the glory of God alone when we do not take credit for God's work in sanctification. We've all kind of been programmed to take credit for what we do. If we perform well in your job, and your coworker takes credit for your good idea, we get mad. Right? I do. Maybe I'm the only one. Of course, I don't have any coworkers right now, so it's kind of awkward. <laughs> but in some ways, that's right. I mean, we should take responsibility. We should work hard. We should do the things that we know we're supposed to do. But when we work hard and accomplish our goals, we get this sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. But when we consider the work of God through his spirit 
in our lives as we grow and develop, I think we glorify him when we give him the credit for what we do because we know that it's him working in us anyways. Right? This is what Peter's talking about, 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our working, our serving, our laboring is for the glory of God. Don't take credit for that. It's not yours to take. It belongs to God. Paul said this in Colossians 1. For this I toil, struggling with all of my good skills. No, that's the message translation. Here's what the ESV says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, which God provides to me. Paul did not take credit for what he did. It was not his to take, and he is merely a mirror that when bent over reflects the glory back to God, which is what each one of us are called to do as Christians. We live our lives to the glory of God alone when we do not take credit for God's work in sanctification. Lastly, number three, we live our lives to the glory of God alone when we study, memorize, and meditate on the Word of God. If glorifying God means that we ascribe to Him everything that He is worth, if we give Him the credit, if we give Him the praise, if we give Him the honor for what He has done, how are we going to find out what He has done other than to look to His Word? You cannot separate these solas apart. They are all tied together. We need the scripture to tell us about Christ. And we need the work of Christ to give us grace and to give us faith so that we live our lives to the glory of God alone. High theology will lead to high doxology. Right? The more that you think about God, the higher your view of God is, the greater your worship should and shall be. Because he's worth it. High doxology comes from high theology. Are you seeing now? Are you seeing how all of this is connected together? The scriptures are meant to inform our understanding of God and his work of redemption. They inform us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merit of Christ alone. And now we end by seeing that our lives are to be lived to the glory of God alone. And we live our lives in that way when we study and memorize and meditate on the Word of God. You see, so little of our lives is premeditated, so much of what we do is spontaneous which is why it is so important that you get God's word in your heart. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How are you going to live your life without the Bible? You're not. You're going to shrivel up spiritually and die if you are not regularly taking in the word of God. And that is how we glorify him in the way we live our lives. 
We are to live our lives to the glory of God alone. We're going to close by singing, All Glory Be to Christ, which I think is an appropriate ending. So as Josh comes and before we sing, let's pray together. Father, we do not deserve to be recipients of your grace. We do not deserve to be called into fellowship with you and share in your glory. We do not even deserve to be doormen in the house of God, but how sweet it is that you, through Christ, have condescended to us and have offered us the way of salvation. Father, would we go from here more in love with you and more equipped to serve you and more convinced in our minds that the scriptures are true, that Christ is real, and everything we do should be to your glory. Make this a reality in my own heart, God, and in the hearts of these brothers and sisters. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.